Thank you to Amjad for joining us today. Amjad is, I'm sure people here know, the founder and CEO of Replit, which is the world's leading online programming environment and community. Before Replit, Amjad worked at Facebook, overseeing the JavaScript infrastructure team and building some of the world's most popular open source dev tools. He was a founding engineer at Code Academy, the world's leading online coding school. And Replit is growing like crazy. It has over 20 million developers on the platform with over 240 million REPLs. Is that right? I think so, yeah. And has really become very quickly a leader in AI. And we all kind of saw this now. Amjad, as we'll talk about, has been thinking about AI and how it'll affect his company for a long time. So excited to talk about that. All right, so quick round of applause for Amjad. Thank you. Okay, so lots of questions about AI and the product and Code Llama and all of that, but I just wanna start off with your journey. It's been, I think, a pretty incredible journey. You're from Jordan, is that right? Yeah. Are you the first unicorn from Jordan? Uh, I, I'm not counting, but I don't know any others. You so. don't know any others, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just incredible. You're an American citizen as well. I think I saw a photo on Twitter, but you're also representing your country here and I'm guessing they're pretty proud of you. Yeah. I know you've met with the crown prince of Jordan. Like he probably has told you, what has he told you? How does that feel? Yeah, it's sort of interesting because my parents are both refugees from different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. We're not originally Jordanians. My dad is from Palestine. My mom is from Algeria, fled different kind of wars. And so we came to Jordan. It's our adopted country, but it provided stability. It's sort of an island stability in a region of, of chaos. And so, you know, it was great, but we also grew up in lower middle class sort of environment. So coming to the US is, is one thing and being able to, to build a startup and being you know in Silicon Valley and being able to meet a lot of amazing people that I looked up to for, for a long time is really great, but also getting the recognition back home yeah. and being able to go to the palace and meet with the crown prince and go to his wedding was something of a full circle. So it was, it was really great to it was a great feeling. Yeah, and Replit's so international. I'm guessing you have users back home as well. Yeah, we have users everywhere. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. Like, even small countries have insane adoption, like Singapore. Something like 10% of the country are <laughs> have accounts on Replit. I mean, it's a small country. But yeah, there are like places where there's like double-digit like percentage of the population that use Replit in some capacity. How did that happen? I don't know. I mean, it's a mystery to me. I'm honestly surprised anytime anything I do works. That's kind of the programmer's sort of delight. It's like, you're, <laughs> oh, my program works. You're actually using it. And so I'm still always surprised when people get value out of Replit in a good way, which is great. But, you know, we've always thought strategically and you have to be growing in the shadow of giants, right? Like, you know, we're in the neighborhood of Microsoft, right? So you have to be kind of careful about how you're growing. Initially, you kind of want to be a mouse, like, you know, you kind of want to hide in the shadows and like not really for them not to like pay attention to you initially. Right. And, you know, the power of the platform has evolved so much since the start. But initially, it was just like a text editor, a run button and just like console output. And that's all you could do. And I was surprised how much value people got out of that thing. Initially, like a lot of the growth were just teenagers sitting at home wanting to learn how to code and like Googling 
for a really long time before all this SEO madness, if you Googled it, like, how do I run Python online? Replit was number one mm. for like five years. And now it's like getting SEO like crazy. But a lot of it was really young kids early on. And those kids would bring it to school and would tell their teachers and their teacher would bring 30 other kids. And so it grew in this like viral fashion. And we hear from power users today that, oh, actually my nephew introduced me to this product. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of social networks grow that way where the trend starts with teens. You know, Facebook was mostly initially teens and now, you know, it's mostly boomers. But it, it grew in sort of this way. But there's also a lot of mystery to growth. Like sometimes we see entire countries get excited about that at once, like Thailand, all these people in Thailand. A lot of it is like just interest or some story happened. People know that programming and software actually is a potentially life-changing thing, right? Like the, the way software changed my life, a lot of people around the world would look at this, at this thing and say, okay, this is the way I'm going to be able to build a life for myself and for my family. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. That's the thing that really gets us fired up at, at Replity. Like for the first time in human history, you can sit in front of like a light bulb and press a bunch of keys and so and, and see your bank account just go up in value. I mean, it's kind of magical <laughs> that this is possible, right? I'm, I'm hearing about people around me that are making money on Replit or have changed their lives because they found a job on Replit. There's this kid in Nepal doing bounties on Replit. And the company he did a bounty for, they were so impressed by him that they hired him full-time. and They paid him like San Francisco salary, like 100K. And he was in tears when he called them. And he said that my father is a day laborer in South Korea, and I'm going to be able to bring him back home. Like the teenager, the kid is going to be able to change his entire family. So I think those kind of stories are kind of fueling the growth these days. Switching gears a little bit. Replit is, is, as you said, kind of started out as a way just to run code. It's evolved into much more than that. Right now, there are a bunch of other tools associated with it. A lot of things you're doing on AI. Earlier this year, you guys released the Replit code models. What kind of went into the decision to release those models and build those models in the first place? Yeah, so we started building with GPT and like GPT-2, like 2019, 2020. And it was so primitive, but you could see a glimpse of like, oh, this model is like generating, you know, every 50 generation, like compilable code. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, you know, maybe we can build something with it. And we tried and it wasn't that good. It wasn't until GPT-3 that we saw that, okay, we can build a, a product. And we wanted to build an autocomplete type product because that's what everyone was thinking about at the time. You see the Gmail kind of ghost text completion and Copilot ended up doing that. So we went into this like negotiation with OpenAI to build on top of GPT-3 and it was just impossible. I mean, GPT-3 pricing went down so much, but at the time it was really impossible to envision any sort of world where we can give it away for free or the kind of dollar value that we'd have to charge people would be a lot for this to be feasible. And so in, I would say like May or April 22, we decided to explore what other options are out there. Salesforce had uh, released CodeGen, 
And it was like a kind of a silent release. People were not really excited about open source models at the time. My brother works at Rappler too, he's an engineer. He's an engineering manager now. But basically, whenever I have an idea, I just go to him. And so there's this, there's this thing, a recurring thing that happens where like future products that really start with a prototype between me and him. Actually, we're working on something now. But we went out and we prototyped it. And every week we have this meeting called Weekly Wins where we do demos. And we demo to the team a open source model that is actually doing relatively good code generation. And it was so slow. It, it would take like 20 seconds to get a completion. But then we started optimizing that. And we did a lot of like low level optimization. And we ended up being the first, I think, uh, product built on open source. So we released the first version of Ghost Rider in June 22, which feels like decades ago at this point. And that was good, but it wasn't great. It was this 3 billion parameter model by Salesforce. The interesting thing is like Salesforce accidentally discovered what was revealed later on by the Chinchilla paper, which is what happened is Salesforce trained 200 million parameter model to 2.7 billion parameter up to 12. And they trained them on the same amount of data. At the time, everyone was under training models. And it was the first really sort of llama style overtrained model. And we're like, oh, interesting. Like maybe we can train it further. And we trained it further and we got better results. It was like, oh, okay, cool. So we had this product, people were using it. People were really excited about it. People started paying for it. It was like really meaningful for our business. And we wanted better performance. So we decided to, to train our model to get better performance. And our model, like 3B now, like a lot of companies ended up copying that style, which is great. One more innovation, better performance. But at the time, it was state-of-the-art for its size. It was state-of-the-art for all of open source code generation models. And obviously now there's Code Llama and all, all this stuff, but we were sort of early to that. So the decision wasn't hard because it was a product need. Like we needed to make the product better. It was a competitive need. Like one thing we're really good at at Replit is like making deals. <laughs> so we did the deal with Mosaic and we got a really big discount and we were this big Mosaic use case. And it really was, I think, really instrumental for their acquisition. And so they gave us a lot of discounts and we ended up not paying a whole lot for it. Better negotiator than me. <laughs> yeah, I kind of enjoy that. But yeah, that was the story. Is that the plan going forward to keep on building models internally and then open sourcing them? Well, I, you know, the famous Steve Jobs line is like, you want to start from the customer. And I think a lot of what happens in Silicon Valley is that it ends up being a competition who can buy the most GPUs. It ends up being like who can score the most on human eval. And people start playing dirty tricks even. Like we see benchmarks where they prompt, they pre-prompt their model and they don't prompt our model to like look better. It's like, oh, who cares? Like just build good shit. Like don't, don't like compete on these silly numbers. And so we don't want to compete on silly numbers. We want to advance our product and make our users happy. And insofar we find an innovation that we can open source, we will open source it. Yes, there are plans to train more models, but those models are going to be like a real clear need in the market. And we're going to continue to open source models because we think that's the ethical thing to do. If you train an open source data, I think there's some ethical requirement to put at least part of it to the public. What we did with the 3B model, 
We train it on open source, permissively licensed code, and we open sourced it. And then we fine tuned the model on Replit data. And we got 50% improved performance on product metrics. And we kept that, right? There's some advantage you want to keep, but I think we'll continue doing that. So do you think that the performance gap between the open source models and closed source models is going to widen, shrink? Like, how do you think that's going to play out over the next, you know, few years? What's the instrument that uh, goes like this? Accordion. Accordion. Yeah, it's going to go accordion. It's going to keep widening and shrinking. I think right now there's obviously shrinkage. You mean as of this morning? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Code Llama is decently important news. I'm still yet to form like a very good opinion on it. I will say it is better than I expected. And we can get into that in a second. But I think that there's a lot of progress right now. It, again, it's hard to figure out good progress from like just demos, right? I mean, there, there are open source models that train on the human eval benchmark. <laughs> and once a lot of people would try to deploy these models, not get a lot of uh, benefit out of them. But I do think it's shrinking. I think what the big labs are dealing with right now is inference speed. GPT-4 is hard to productize. I'm sure they're still working on GPT-5, but I think there's probably a lot of work going into inference speed optimization. So there's a limit on scaling is like, can you actually deploy those? Is, is there enough GPUs? So I think the commercial models have a bottleneck in front of them. That's why open source is catching up. Once that bottleneck is solved, I think they'll continue to scale. And then open source will be a little behind. You mentioned about Code Llama being a little bit more interesting than you expected. Can you say a little more about that? Yes. So one of the hard things about competing with Microsoft is, I mean, you know, I'm not judging the people there. They're great people, but ethics don't really drive their decision making. And, and I'm trying to be as nice as possible. <laughs> Copilot is, you know, there's lawsuits right now because it's generating GPL code. It's generating copyleft code. So Copilot could actually infect your code with open source copyleft code such that you have to open source your code base. And there's probably a lot of people probably in this room that have this problem from Copilot. That's user harm. They're facing a lot of lawsuits. So most open source models are, are trained on basically MIT exclusively. And there's a lot of really good code that is not MIT out there. And OpenAI and Microsoft have, train on these and they don't really care. So when Meta was training the Code Llama, I figured they would train on permissively licensed code because Meta is under a lot of scrutiny. I don't know if that's the thing that happened, but that, that puts you at a disadvantage because you don't have the same amount of tokens to train on. I think they trained on 500 billion tokens. You can train on a trillion. Like there's, there's more than a trillion tokens of open source code there if you train on everything. Are you saying that they, like, do they train only on permissively licensed ones or? I would guess. I didn't read the paper. Did anyone, oh, okay, does yeah. anyone know? <laughs> I'm not sure yet either. I, didn't I, I, think, they, I think they did. I would Maybe be surprised <laughs> if they didn't because, you know, governments hate Facebook and they would want to go after them. To be clear, Replit is not built on OpenAI at all. Is that right? No, we use, we use OpenAI in some of the use cases. When I released the blog post talking about Ghostwriter, I, I call this society of models. And the idea is that because these models are 
the, the interface is, is pretty clear. It's English. It's, it's, it's a commodified interface. Um, companies will be using a lot of different models. And so we use different models for different use cases. In some cases, we use OpenAI. Got it. Is that for the Ghostwriter chat? Mm -hmm. Got it. Actually, maybe we should have done this at the beginning. Can you take a step back and walk us through the different Ghostwriter components of the product or AI components of the product? Yeah. So there's the inline completion, similar to Copilot. This is literally triggering on every keystroke. Mm -hmm. We have a very small model, hyper-optimized. We have this very cool inference sort of stack and operation. And one of our AI engineers gave a talk uh, about it recently. You can find it on my Twitter page. And that responds in like median time, like 100 milliseconds, like end to end to get to the user. So that has to be really fast. And this is where we use our in-house trained models. With Ghostwriter Chat, it has an intent layer. And that layer is something in-house that we've done. Intent detection layer to figure out what model to use and to figure out what prompting strategy to use. And then based on the, the intent, we figure out which model to send to. And in some cases, we want to send to the most advanced model. And today, truthfully, it's GPT-4, the most advanced model in the market. And sometimes when the intent is to generate like a really large file and complicated, you would want to use GPT-4. So we have Ghostwriter chat. We have now inline chat, I guess we're calling it. But basically, when you want to generate entire blocks of code, the smaller autocomplete style model is not the best because it's not instruction tuned. And it's just mostly a completion engine. And so then you're using Coastal Chat inside the IDE. And we're coming up with new UX patterns. A lot of the innovation is going to be in UX next, I think, few months at least to a year. Because I don't think we have really figured out or nailed down. And this is something for the entrepreneurs to figure out. The audience is like, Sprinkling a bit of chat on apps is not the way to make really cool AI experiences. And I think a, a lot of that is, is just figuring those parts out. Do you have any other ideas for what it could look like? We're going to be making a big announcement. Uh, I'm speaking at TED.AI in, in October. So we'll have sort of the next iteration. More to come. Yeah. So we'll have the next iteration. of. I'm excited uh, to see it. <laughs> OpenAI. I'm sure you've thought a lot about using them or not. There's some awkwardness, right? So your biggest competitor, if I'm correct, is GitHub Copilot. GitHub is owned by Microsoft. Microsoft is a huge partner to OpenAI. How do you think about that dynamic? So I, I think there are ways in which the relationship with Microsoft could be very, very positive. GitHub is obviously a place where a lot of people store code and collaborate on code and Replit integrates with GitHub. There are ways where we're already working with them. And I think depending on which lens you look at it through, you'll find different angles in which we compete and different angles in which we complete each other. We were one of the first earliest customers of OpenAI. Um, so yeah, the relationship is, is a bit complicated. It's not easy to kind of just go with Microsoft things. And we have also a partnership with Google that's pretty big. So yeah, we're still small and you want to be able to, to work with anyone and not like make yourself a target. Yeah. You know how Netscape made, made, made self a target for, yeah. for Microsoft, which I already probably did. But I mean, GitHub tried to acquire Replit in like 2018, 2019. Oh, and we we're very small. They were trying to give us like a lot of money. 
And we said no. And then Nat Friedman was CEO at the time. He said, yeah, we're building an IDE. We're going to kill you. Hmm. Obviously, we're friends now with Nat. They built it. And Codespaces has sucked for a long time. It's now good. Mm-hmm. It's now getting good. So, yeah, just have to navigate that. As you think about growing into something that's not the tiny mouse standing in the shadows and into a much larger company, there's a few different ways that you can monetize, right? You can kind of have Repl Pro where you're charging $20 a month. I've also talked maybe about becoming a cloud company and sort of that, that piece of it. How do you think about the mix of those, about how that evolves over time? Like, what are you sort of most excited about as you guys are growing? So I think IDEs are, are a commodity. I think I, I would venture to say that a lot of forms of AI is a commodity. I don't think you should sell AI as a product unless you're selling tokens, right? Unless you're at the lower level part of the stack. But even then, it's a lot of competition. And it'll probably look like the cloud probably be semi-commodified with some deep advantage around hardware and data centers and things like that. And I think the foundation model ecosystem was sort of look like the cloud and maybe it is just the cloud that'll do that. I think the value sort of accrues on the sort of infrastructure or like second order platform level where you're able to, to build like a really great experiences and use these cloud primitives to build amazing sort of end-to-end experiences for users where you abstract away all the complexity. And so the, that's what, what gets us really fired up. Our North Star is like a person building a billion-dollar company. And I think it's possible in the next couple of years. And, and it's not just AI, right? Like you can generate all the code you want, but who's going to run it? Who's going to scale it? In two weeks, we're coming out with an auto-scale product that allows you to go from zero to infinity and back to zero. And so that, that really finally completes the Replit sort of user journey where you come in, you don't know how to code, you learn how to code, you build something, AI helps you with all of that, and then you deploy it and you get real customers and you can scale from there. And the reason a lot of people end up leaving in the past was that they couldn't scale. So now we're going to give that primitive. And... I think this is where we're going to make most of our money is on the scalers, on the people that grow big with us. And that's kind of the business of the cloud. Again, like start from the customer, right? And what the customer needs. I don't think we're selling tokens. I don't think we're selling AI as a product. We're selling a dream, which is come build your ideas and make a lot of money. Nice. You're kind of like the uh, personification of that dream a little bit. Yeah, I hope so. It's not a lot of money yet. It it is funny to hear you describe yourself as a mouse. Like I just, if I could choose like any word in the world, like the last one I would have chosen for you is mouse. Well, I was describing the company, but yeah. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Still, like it is actually a useful reminder for me to hear you talking about that like Replit's still small, like not trying to get any targets on our back. You know, we're not. Competing. I'm not very good at that. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I see that. But yeah, still, like you are really kind of a giant in this industry, you personally, and then Replit. So, I mean, kudos. That's exciting. It is like honestly surprising for me to hear you say that because you loom so large in this world. You're seen as like really well positioned and doing a ton and moving really fast in AI. Yeah, but like Replit could fail. I don't think our success is certain. The thing is, like, we say no to acquisitions like every other day, right? And yeah, I mean, as a company, there's probably strategic value in it 
anyhow. But what we're trying to build is really a long-term vision. And to do that, we have to take a lot of risks and we have to ship really fast and we have to move fast. You know, we were the first to actually build like a coding chat UI in an IDE. Um, we had to be the second to the autocomplete feature because we were negotiating with OpenAI as Microsoft was building it. But we generally like first a lot of trends. And that's because we just have like a long-term vision, a lot of conviction on some really core bets. And whatever happens, market gets hyped, cool. Markets become bearish, cool. But we're just on this trajectory and we want to stay on that. But at the same time, because we're trying to build this big thing, it just makes our job a lot harder to make it really a big home run. Yeah. Let's take a step back from Replit. You are not mouse-like in other areas too. I know you're getting involved with AI policy. I know you've taken a few trips to DC to talk to policymakers. What are you telling them these days? To be clear, like most of the time I'm like, you know, building product, coding, spending time with the team. I just came from the office. So I'm not like in DC a whole lot, but when people ask me to talk to them, the, the, the thing I want to tell like politicians in America, but everywhere else, but especially America is like, this is the dream. This is the American dream on steroids. Like for the first time you have an idea and you can build a business in like an hour or two. We were just talking about it earlier with your company. It means enabling people to build businesses with prompts. Like <laughs> you can like publish prompts and start getting money on his site. You know, so it's, it's pretty crazy. The lowering of the barriers to entry is insane. And an American can come back to our roots of entrepreneurial energy. This idea of like, go West young man. And I think we've lost that quite a bit. And these people end up spending all this time like, office politics and careers and these like dead end jobs and, and things like that. So I think we can create a lot more entrepreneurial energy and create a lot more wealth. And that's super exciting. And I think everything else is a distraction. Mm -hmm. So how can policymakers help us do that? Well, first of all, they should like probably more or less get out of the way. <laughs> I think where they can be very helpful is provide clarity on things like copyrights. Mm. There's no clarity on that at all right? Like no one knows whether you're going to get sued tomorrow. You also want to lead in some areas such that like Europe is not putting the worst thing out and everyone's conforming to it. So I think providing regulatory clarity is going to be important. Mm -hmm. um, on the safety side, I think they should, and I mentioned this to people really high up in, in government, is just like regulate the touch points between AI and critical infrastructure, right? If you're gonna apply AI on a utility company, that should be probably regulated, but don't regulate the technology itself. Mm -hmm. And I think continuing to make sure that the US is like the best place to, to build companies, making sure our immigration system sort of works better, all this stuff and just getting more talent here, a lot more people, SF could be a lot better. There's a lot of things that could be better that are not AI that will like enable AI. All right, last question. I suspect it might be on the minds of some people here, but you're also an active angel investor. Um, what, is, what are you excited about other people building or potentially investing in? Oh, there's so much. 
sometimes the question is, where can't you apply AI, right? It's sort of very exciting. You know, I'm always excited about creative tools, like anything that, you know, allows people to be more creative, allowed them to start businesses, become more entrepreneurial. Those are really, really exciting. And there's a ton of them. Like, I think every industry, every creative endeavor that could be applied to, I think tooling is going to be very important. Mm. So far, like everyone is YOLOing models into production. No one knows whether the, <laughs> the models get worse over time. Everyone like, sus- sus- uh, is suspicious that, you know, GPT-4 is getting worse. And OpenAI is like, no, it's not. You're hallucinating. And then someone at MIT is like, you know, or whatever, I think, organization came out with a research paper that, no, GPT-4 is actually getting worse. It turns out that he had a bug in, the, in his code, right? And it's like, <laughs> and no one knows whether these models are getting better or getting worse, right? So like, you know, tools such as evaluations, CI, CD type tools, we're talking about prompt editors and prompt IDEs uh, a little bit earlier. There's a ton of tooling. It's an entirely new software stack. It's like when the cloud became really big, we had to build the entire set of desktop software stack on the cloud. Mobile required another software stack. And now we need, really need another entire software stack. AI software stack. Yeah. So there's a lot of tools to build. I think the agent thing is, is it, it, I don't think people have figured out exactly what to do there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have thoughts. <laughs> right. Yeah. But there's something to do there. Right. I think a lot of it is going to just be building just great software infrastructure. It's not about how good the models are. It's about how good the environment you're situating the models in, such that the model can actually reach out to tools and use them, combine tools to create emergent behavior. And again, be able to debug all that and use all the tools and all the software stack that we talked about. So that's also an exciting area. Josh, anything to add on the coding agent side? Now that sounds about right. Yeah, I think making those things robust, like making the infrastructure for those, like people get really excited about the models, but the stuff that matters is like the data, the infrastructure, the tooling, the stuff around it, the environment they're in, like all that stuff matters. How you turn it into a useful product, like that stuff's all the stuff that matters, even though it seems like so cool to focus on the fancy algorithms. All right, we'll switch it over to the audience. So I will ask the one that was submitted earlier. How does Replit plan to differentiate its AI offerings from other competitors in this space, like CodeLama, GitHub Copilot, and CodeWhisperer, to attract and retain developers? Yeah, again, we don't really reason from competition. We reason mm-hmm. from users. And luckily, we have a lot of users to, to <laughs> listen to, and they complain quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and we love those complaints, like keep them coming. So today, we're doing DHR, head of design here. We're researching. We're like, we got a customer. We sat him in the room and we tortured him to figure out, I think he's over there somewhere, to figure out you know, where we're falling short. And I, th- I think that allows you to actually come up with innovations. Because if you're reasoning by uh, looking at competitors, you end up copying things that you think are working, but are actually not working because they demo well. Whereas when you talk to users and you prototype and you put those new versions in front of users, you're going to get high quality real world feedback. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think the way Replit differentiates from any of those other things is that it's a full stack environment. It's a vertically integrated environment. I mean, you can install GitHub Copilot and VS Code, but where are you going to run the code? Where are you going to deploy it? You still have to make all these decisions. 
And then the AI doesn't have access to that environment. The copilot doesn't know your deployment environment, whereas Ghostwriter does. And so that vertical integration aspect of it, I mean, vertically integrated products are so delightful. Think about your experience with Apple. Like, it's amazing, like just the iPhone, just because they built everything, right? From the transistor to the pixel. Uh, Tesla, like when you go somewhere, Tesla, and it's like low in battery, it adds the closest supercharger. Uh, on the way, it primes your battery. You go in, you charge exactly the amount you need, and you leave. And it takes five minutes. And sometimes I drive on like 5%. It takes me to the station and I continue my way. And the reason is because they own the station, they own the cars, they own the battery technology. And it takes a lot of time. Like it took them 20 years to do that. But once you get to this vertically integrated experience, it's, it's super delightful for the customer. All right, next question from Brown Mink. What are your biggest skepticisms around AI? Well, I think it's short-term overhyped, like in like 21, 22, or 2020, it was like a lot of people that were like playing with GPT-2 and 3, it's like, fuck, this is amazing. Why isn't anyone talking about this? This is crazy. It's almost like, it felt like a secret. And then now it feels, it feels overhyped. VCs are overreacting, markets are overreacting, and they're going to get disappointed. I think probably we're going to see a cool down in the AI investing probably like late this year because a lot of people with short-term attention crypto is going to start pumping again i'm pretty sure <laughs> and when is the next having flow probably knows next year i think yeah next year is the next bitcoin having so there's there's another crypto thing that's going to suck the air from AI. i think that's a good thing because the market tends to be sort of bipolar manic depressive right so i think we're in the mania phase right now but that'll, that'll probably cool down and that's when the builders build that's when you can go hits down and shut out all the noise and really build. All right. This one from Luke Davis, who's in the audience today. When AI is better at programming than the best human programmers, how does Replit's story change? So, so I, I wrote this blog post in 2020, sketching out the future of like coding with AI. The first prediction that I made was already done, which is faster than I expected. What was the first prediction? It's going to automate away all, all the drudgerous aspect of programming. And I think the autocomplete type interaction automate away all, a lot of the typing. And now the chat type interaction is automating away a lot of the debugging. I sketch out two other steps, but like the third one is at some point, the word coding might actually disappear from our lexicon. And the thing that remains is programming, computing. And the idea that people can use computers to its fullest extent is incredibly exciting. It doesn't matter if we're, if we're not writing code. I don't think it's going to happen very soon. I still think even if it happens, there's still value of learning how to code to debug your agent code or whatever. But, you know, at, at Replit, we're like trying to build for the future. And so we're actually trying to discover that future. A lot of things that we're going to announce in October are around these ideas of what is the actual future of programming. All right, last question from Armagon Belham in the audience. Thinking about AI in an international context, what are problems that interest you that might be solved or irrelevant in the U.S. but would have major impacts outside of the U.S.? I mean, just solving the language barrier, that's huge. Mm. 
you, you can think about it as like, we have all this natural compute that is offline today because of the language barrier. Like you have billions of people that we're not able to work with in the West because they don't speak English. And imagine once the language barrier, just our neighbors you know, down South America, there's tons of talent there that there's some language barrier. It's hard to actually get them fully involved in the global digital economy. So that alone is really huge. I mean, it feels like we have the technology. Josh, what, why do you think it hasn't happened yet? I, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, the, the translation, especially Chinese, English and Spanish works pretty well now. So it's a good question. When, when can I have a conversation with someone like this and actually you hear me in Spanish and I'll hear in English? I think this is a good challenge for people in the audience or listening. Like the tools are there today. If someone really wanted to put their mind to it, I think they could do a really good job of that. I, I think that's, that's really huge. There's a lot of other things. But really, if there's one thing is solving the language barrier, that will increase the global GDP by probably double digit percentage. All right, we'll end on that challenge. Amjad, thank you so much. Quick round of applause for Amjad. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.